Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. I'm just curious, where does your inspiration come from? When, when did you get started with travel? And when did you decide to go more extreme and change the 193 countries? Yeah, so I had a, a number of starts and stops when traveling. So I did a, a fair amount of traveling with my parents growing up. Uh, then I went dormant, or let's say I did a ton of domestic travel uh, associated with my job in the U.S., um, and then in the 2000s, I started spreading my wings again, um, doing some international travels. I got laid off a couple of times. Each time I got laid off, I used this as a catalyst to start doing some extensive travels. Um, I got laid off during the financial crisis in 2008. I was quite excited about this. 2009, I planned a trip for about 12 months around the world and rather randomly without really any great you know thought put into this um i my goal was really only to visit new countries on that trip and in the back of my mind i said i'm just going to travel to every country in the world and i'm going to start knocking off countries off that list so i went to about 30 countries that year probably about five repeats and about you know 20 plus new ones as I started traveling in South Korea and my, made my way west until I got back to the U.S. 12 months after that. It's such a fascinating idea, and I think it, it definitely caught on to me, too. I, I didn't really notice that I collected countries, so to speak. You know, I just wanted to see something new. I think we all share this, this love for, for being exposed to something new and then mastering it as as, as well as we can and the the idea of going to 193 countries you know all un um recognized countries wasn't something i ever focused on but it at some point really appealed to me because it gave me this challenge right it's this there is another challenge out there and i know there is people who count regions um i know there's people who count traveling to as many places as possible quite differently than necessarily countries 
I, it definitely appealed to me over the years. I'm kind of falling out with that a little bit because I feel a lot of countries impose challenges on my travel style that I'm not ready to compromise with. So that's either um, the security situation, that's um, the visa situation, that's what you can actually expect in terms of tourist infrastructure. So I'm a little hesitant. I'm, I'm somewhere around 130 countries right now. And from what I've, I've seen, you, you're in, in a similar place. And I feel that some of these 60 countries that are, that are relatively hard to travel to, and I'm trying to figure out, should I go there or should I, should I really focus on the places that, that raise my curiosity? Um, how, how does that feel for you? How, how committed, so to speak, are you to go to 193 countries right now? Yeah, I, I think you touched on one of the big age old debates in the travel community, right? So I've spoken to some people who are so well traveled or spend so many months overseas every month, but they might focus on one or five different countries. Or then you have someone like myself who is chasing 193, trying to go to every country in the year uh, in the world. And then again, yes, you're having this debate. Do you go back to the places you love or are you constantly exploring new territories, new land? So I'm very committed to completing the 193. Um, this was not the case when I mentioned I started doing this in 2009. For a couple of years after that, I don't think I was you know, visiting more than one or two new countries a year after that. Um, and then just to build on this, around 2014, maybe, I read Chasing 193, a book about uh, extreme travelers who have traveled to every country in this world. I, this was the first point I was kind of realizing there's an actual community of people doing this. And when I read that book, I kind of uh, integrated within the Chasing 193 community, and this kind of sparked the flame to start pursuing this quest more seriously. There's, and I know you run a really interesting podcast. It's called Counting Countries, correct? Yes. And I, I think you have a really great mix of travelers on that podcast. And uh, you do really in-depth interviews. I really enjoy listening to a couple of the episodes. And what I've noticed, and that's to your point, is there's a, there's an interesting community uh, that really focuses on extreme traveling that to me was news until a couple of years ago, to be honest. And uh, there is something called ETIC, if I get this correctly. So that's, that's a community of extreme travelers that go to some of the places that don't really show on maps, like islands or that, that or in the middle of the Pacific and nobody's ever been to really. I mean, they're, they're, there's no, definitely nobody living there. And then there's a bunch of others. How do you, how do you make sense of these communities? Because they seem to all look at the same thing, but from slightly different perspectives. Well, I, I mean, I think that's anybody in the travel community or chasing 193. So, you know, as we touched on, you have people doing fast travel, very in-depth travel, you have people chasing 193. Then you have some of the travel travelers clubs like Traveler Century Club, which divides the world into 329 places. Most traveled people, I hope I get the number right, 989. And Nomad Mania, 1301. So yeah, I mean, 
what is your goal? What is your passion? What is your interest? And then, you know, you're going to lay out this goal, this objective, and then go out and try and accomplish that goal. Um, you know, the motivation is different for everybody. Um, chasing 193 and maybe one night a country, and that will keep you sufficiently happy that you scratch the surface. And then you're touching on these other individuals who will spend 60 days on a boat to visit a speck in the South Atlantic Ocean that's a couple miles by a couple miles, which doesn't have a living soul on it. So you can see the level of dedication or passion that some of these people are employing to reach their goal. I think the word we are looking for is insanity. It, and I would argue that you are correct. And I mean, I'm talking about Charles Veeley, who, you know, it's hard to say there's a uh, definitive best traveled or most traveled, but Charles Veeley is the founder of most traveled people. He's definitely on the list of one of those most traveled people in the world. I interviewed him and I, I have to be honest, Thorsten. I mean, at some level, my jaw is dropping on the ground. So he went to visit Bouvet Island again. It was a 60 day, 60 days on a boat, all told to be able to visit this island for a couple of hours. And to put this, <laughs> to put this in context, he had just had his first kid uh, a month or two before he set out on this journey. And I believe he missed Thanksgiving and Christmas. So the passion, the extreme dedication displayed by some members of this community are you know, pushing the, the bounds of sanity at some level. I feel we, this, 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 this really inner circle of the heavy travelers, and I spoke to Collier Spurry a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. He's, he's one of those outliers. I, I feel this dedication that we see kind of resembles the, the explorers, you know, the, the 14th, 15th, 16th century explorers who went around the world basically on a one-way mission. So, I mean, there was a, they had some idea where to go, but they really didn't know what's going to expect them there. They were um, not so happy Indians they would encounter. Um, there would be uh, seas, there would be scurvy, there would be lots of challenges. And often they did it anyways. And we, there seems to be a certain part of our population that is conditioned to behave in such a way. It's a relatively small number, so it's probably just definitely less than 1% of the population, probably 0.1 or even less. And they are looking for outlets for this extreme curiosity, um, or maybe it's, it's, it's a psychological disorder, whatever it actually is. <laughs> it seems to be something we, we have built into our genetic structure because it seems to be stable over a long time frame. The problem now is, or maybe these phases come and go where we have a technology that allows us to explore something we haven't. Um, but currently it seems the whole planet Earth seems to be completely discovered and travel seems to be so easy that anyone can do it. They, you, you don't really need any real fitness. You don't really need any huge bank accounts. You can go anywhere you want on the before COVID that is, and hopefully at one point we go back to this, at least to some extent, and you could go wherever you wanted without a real challenge, but we can't go to Mars yet. Hopefully we can in 10, 15 years, but there isn't something where we easily kind of experience the wild west. And maybe these extreme travelers are chasing that same dream, right? They are trying to find that 
lasting, that's just is a unique experience and stays unique for quite some time. It, it, agreed. So, I mean, maybe you can even splice that into two categories. You have the travelers who are checking boxes and checking lists and are propelled by this OCD-ish level of collecting things. And then the other part of that community is what you're describing, people who are explorers, who want to learn, who desire to see things that no one else has seen or very few people have experienced. And again, you can also be a combination of those two different categories as well. So. Which category are you? <laughs> um, I would argue that I am in both categories. So I enjoy this idea of keeping Excel spreadsheets and keeping lists and tracking my travels and checking boxes. Um, but in the same light, I am so excited and you know, motivated to go have these incredible experiences, to see these amazing things and do these incredible things. So both for me. I read a bunch of books by Carl Jung, and uh, he has a lot of, he's uh, one of the Freud's disciples. Um, and, and he, besides his psychological work, he also traveled to a lot of places. And uh, he read a lot of books about other cultures, mostly primitive cultures at the time, that's where they were called. So countries and cultures in Africa and in Asia that hadn't advanced to, in his view, higher level of civilization. And uh, he had a very, I, I really enjoyed the reading those, he had a very interesting perspective on that. He really wanted to find out what, what, what drives the people in these countries, how do these cultures work, and, and actually what's overlapping. So there's, there's a lot of overlap that he could find between different cultures that seemingly never had any contact with each other. And that's one of the great inspirations when I go somewhere that I can talk to people as much as I can understand them if, if there's a there's a ability to speak the language or find someone who speaks English. The ability to realize, you know, what is what what do we have in common from, from our point of view, how the world works and how people in that place think. And there's a lot of globalization going on. So I think <laughs> the difference between the US and Australia is, is very small. Um, and even most places in Asia, you feel like people have been integrated in this global level of thinking. But if you go outside of this, there's still lots to be discovered in terms of what's, what's ancient heritage. <laughs> what I can't really understand is, is how would you put yourself under all this pressure to literally just go for a country for one night or just to get the passport stamp for one hour, like people have done... Um, there's a bunch of travelers who went to all the countries that are not even 20 years old or they are under 25. I can't really understand why would you, why would you do this? Why would you see this enormous potential of, of exploring other places? Would you literally just go there for one night? Or what, what's the payoff there psychologically? Well, I guess from my perspective of having interviewed a lot of these people, I can maybe share with you their mindset. Uh, mindset. Um, yeah. So I, I think the fast travelers, um, one explanation they'll share with you is I want to quote unquote, get it over with. 
And then I'm going to know what countries I'm interested in. And I'm still young enough and I'm going to be traveling and going back to these countries after the fact. That might be number one. Number two, they're so excited about completing this goal. And the reality is they might have a job where they only get three weeks of vacation. So the only way they can complete this goal in conjunction with their their life is by doing fast travel. And then maybe the third category is a smaller subset of people trying to actually break records, um, fastest and youngest. Um, so I would say those are the three explanations I typically hear for people doing fast travel. That, that makes it sound much more reasonable. <laughs> I always felt it's a waste. It's a waste of resources. Um, but I, I, that definitely helps me understand the motivation a little bit more. Um, you've been living in Thailand for quite some time. I understand you grew up in the U.S. Um, you're back in the U.S. now, but you spent the last couple of years in Thailand. Correct me if that's incorrect. Um, well, on a typical year for the last seven years, I spend about 90 days in Thailand. The exception yeah. to this rule has been March 17th, 2020 to March, 2021, where I spent my year of COVID in Thailand, never leaving the country for 12 months, which is, you know, for me, unique. Seems like you're wasting a lot of travel time on Thailand. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that goes to the other debate, which tons of travelers have had the last 12 months. Do you travel during COVID? Or do you wait during COVID? Why is it Thailand that's so dear to your heart? Um, I think we all love Thailand in the sense of we all heard of it. Many of us have been there. Um, it really comes close to this travel matrix that I feel I, a lot of people ask about. So it's, it's relatively affordable. The locals are friendly. It's uh, great food, great cuisine. Um, it's tropical, uh, and you, there's even places that are a little cooler if you really need that. So it's it's definitely one of those countries we all love, but it seems to have gotten an enormous amount of, of crowds. So I think it was one of the, based on population size, the most traveled, uh, most inbound tourist country on the planet. And it kind of spoiled it for most of us. Mm. Why is Thailand still your favorite? I, I think Thailand is a fantastic country. Um, a lot of those reasons you just shared. So it's a, I mean, from the perspective of a Westerner, it's an interesting place and culture. It's Eastern, but nonetheless, if you're looking at, let's say comforts or familiarities, you can get as many of those as you want in Bangkok. So if you want Starbucks, McDonald's, you want Peruvian fusion food, you want to have, 10 chicken shawarmas delivered or deep dish pizza, that's all doable in Bangkok. So combination of East and West, uh, you know, Western comforts and interesting things from the East, great cost structure, great people. And the one thing I'll say, Torsten, is this past 12 months gave me a much greater appreciation of what Thailand has to offer. So even though I was locked down in Thailand, the country most of this year was open for travel. 
And on a typical year, I really, I don't travel or explore that much of Thailand because it's 90 days in and out. I'm planning for my next trip. So this year gave me the opportunity to visit a lot of places I would never get to visit. And this country is an onion. You can peel this onion back so many different layers and this country offers so much. And then the one extra giant bonus is this is Thailand 1990, meaning it's like going back 30 years. There's virtually no tourist when you're traveling in the country. So, uh, you know, the tourism industry is always concerned about over tourism. And that is a giant, giant threat to Thailand. Um, it wasn't these last 12 months. And as a person staying in Thailand, that was a major benefit to exploring the country the last 12 months. Yeah, I mean, um, we are very jealous. At least mm. I am. <laughs> mm. um, I can imagine. Um, and I think Thailand, that was the, the only major criticism I could level at Thailand was the overcrowding, um, especially in places where tourists played a major role. And the, the incentive structure that was built there and, and how it changed the country. And if, if that goes back to 1990 or whatever the healthy level is, it uh, doesn't have to be going back in time. I think Thailand has a very bright future um, ahead. What other countries would you recommend that are in kind of a similar spot? And I don't mean this geographically. I mean countries that are relatively accessible. It doesn't take two years to get a visa. It's relatively affordable and uh, has maybe some good food, but it, it allows you to explore it um, relatively <laughs> easily. And um, ideally, those are countries that um, people haven't necessarily heard of. Most of us have heard of Thailand and maybe of Bali, but maybe places that are a bit outside of the, uh, the beaten path. Um, well, I have, I have two thoughts, um, which are my usual go-to answers for this. First one is a shout out to my ethnic homeland of Armenia. So this is really a small country of about 3 million people sandwiched between Turkey and Georgia and Iran. And it has a lot of those elements that you just touched on. Um, it's easy to visit in terms of visa, in terms relatively easy in terms of just getting a flight there. The cost structure is fantastic, probably better than Thailand. It's cheaper. Um, cosmopolitan capital which you could spend a week or a month in between cafes, restaurants, music, museums. Um, then the next best thing is if you can rent a car, um, rent a car and drive around this country. And again, you could spend a week, a month, and you can visit you know, beautiful mountains and valleys. You can go to the forest of Dilijan. You can go to thousand year old monasteries. You can go to Jermug for the spas. Um, so, yeah, I, I really, and the food is great as well. Um, so it really hits a lot of those buttons that you need to hit to make it be one of these very attractive countries uh, on many of these elements that we discussed to, to visit. That sounds super exciting. I, I've heard good things about Armenia before, uh, but I've never been... 
Another country that's in the region, I don't know if you, you have insider information there too, is Albania, which is being described to me as the, the uh, Italy, the Atria of the 1990s or 1980s. So it still has uh, a lot of those amenities, it's great food, um, a great lifestyle. Um, has gotten much safer now. It used to be a country seemingly, mm. Um, mm. I can't really watch what happened on the ground that had a spike in, in crime um, 20, 30 years ago, but it's gotten to a much better place now. What do you think of Albania as a, as a place to go? So I'm, I'm a big fan of the Balkans in general, and I need more time to explore that region. Um, about 10 years ago, I entered a rally, like a car race, where I drove from Budapest to Yerevan. So it was a 17-day, 11-country, uh, 7,000-kilometer rally through those countries. So what I'm getting at is I've been to Albania just two nights, and it was about 10 years ago. I spent one night up in the north in the mountains and one night camping on Lake Ored. Um, so my brief impressions were very positive. And I've read and I'm aware of the, some of the same things that you shared. And Albania is definitely a country I want to get back and, and to visit and see more deeply. Yeah. What other country would you recommend or place uh, doesn't necessarily just have to be a country? Um, maybe one in Africa, one in Asia to just make it a little bit more, more wide our focus. Uh, okay. Well, I was gonna I was gonna share with you Burma, which is one of my favorites. But to yeah. to spread out the geographical distribution, I'm gonna say Uzbekistan, and yeah. Uzbekistan had been on my list for such a long time because this, uh, you know, this thought or the fables of being on the Silk Road was just so high on my list to visit. In Uzbekistan, until just several years ago was a unpleasant country to visit in terms of visas and regulations and rules and customs. Um, they switched to an e-visa. They got rid of a lot of the Soviet-esque rules. And it was in such, I was there for a couple of weeks. I cannot recommend Uzbekistan highly enough. So great infrastructure for tourism easy to get around cost structure is great and torsten so much to see so much cult culture in history uh and amazing stuff to see so big big fan of that country oh i fully fully agree i think uzbekistan is extremely undervalued i went for two weeks and i thought like especially summer kind of kind of like going to jerusalem but there's basically nobody else there there's yeah. a bunch of people from the ukraine and from russia <clears throat> but nobody else and uh, uh, the food is fantastic and it's it's you know the the informal uber which you have in, in many of those places i went a couple of years ago so that was when it was still tricky to to go there and there were a lot of regulations in terms of where where you exchange your dollars and where you don't yeah. exchange your dollars on the minimum of that and where you can stay and where you can't stay and you have to produce a paper for every night so they know where you've been um but this informal Uber style, I found that really interesting. This is kind of common in many, many of those countries, and I use that all the time. You can basically just hail anyone off the street. It doesn't have mm. to be a cab um, because they don't have any cabs, but literally everyone 
um, who has space in their car and you tell them where you're going and they take you and prices are like a dollar or two yeah. across the uh. city. And I did this at 4 a.m. at night and never, never felt worried. Mm. I thought that's, that's just incredible. It's this, this trust that you can expand to pretty much anyone in that, that region. And maybe I was a little bit too enthusiastic, but I thought it really tells you something about the country. But then on the other hand, it was one of these places where I really felt spied upon in a massive way. I mean, it's not that the big tech companies don't spy on us. They do. But I felt like in Tashkent, I always had someone following me uh, when I left the hotel. It it was something where I felt like every single step of mine is being surveilled. And Uzbekistan is known for this, especially in the capitals. For, was I didn't feel it in Samarkand. Maybe it's just the agents were a little more pleasant and mm. they stayed back a little bit. So that felt really strange to me, and I couldn't really make sense. There's a lot of politically motivated, I don't want to say the word atrocities, but there's, there's some strange politics going on in Uzbekistan. I can't really vouch if they are, they are correct or not, if they actually happened. But that really gave me a bitter aftertaste, despite being Uzbekistan, such a perfect place otherwise to visit. Mm-hmm. And just one thing, I mean, you're you know, commenting the lack of tourists. So in Bukhara is the Registan, which is one of the most beautiful sites in the world to see. It's a series of three madrasas. And I like to do a lot of photography and, you know, you're always chasing the light. So you're, you're getting up at 6 a.m. to take photos of the Registan in this example. And again, this is the amazing thing. This site is just as beautiful as the Taj or Angerwat or whatever. But when I show up at 6 a.m. or 6.30, whenever it was, I am the only tourist there. I've got my tripod set up. You know, there's a couple of locals, you know, doing their exercise or walking to work. But otherwise, I own that place. And to be fortunate and lucky enough to see something so amazing and to own it for yourself, I mean, you you can't discount that experience. And that is why people should be going to Uzbekistan to, to be able to partake in something like this. Yeah, there's definitely the hope. And I'm sometimes these politics get to me where I feel like, man, this isn't a place I should support. But on the other hand, you know, there's a small sliver of government who I don't know what they're actually up to, but there's a huge population that I know I really support when I go there and I can talk to them and I can find out what they're up to. And uh, Uzbekistan, and I speak quite a bit of Russian, um, mm. so Russian is, the, is widely used, but they spoke a lot of English there too. So it was very easy to at least have a basic communication with most yeah. people. Yeah, I mean, I did, uh, you know, Kiva, Samarkand, Bukhara, Tashkent, but I also went out to Nukas, mm-hmm. uh, which is the far west, and I did a... Uh, stayed in Nukas for a couple of nights, but did a very, very long drive to the Aral Sea and slept overnight by the sea. So um, there's a great company I'll give a shout out to, I Am Tours, A-Y-I-M, based in Nukas, like this great family business. They've done well, well until COVID. You know, they own two little small hotels um, in Nukas, and a unique experience. And this is also great to be able to get to the West, see some nature, see some outdoors to balance these amazing towns of Kiva, Samarkand and Bukhara and Tashkent. So. 
when you think about the places you went to in Africa, which one would come to mind where you feel like they also would feel would fit into this matrix? Uh, well, I mean, there's so many amazing countries, but falling into the matrix makes it a little tougher, um, you know, because like Thailand, Armenia, Uzbekistan, you can, I mean, you can do all of that 100% by yourself. Um, so, I mean, a lot I'm of fit- people mention, mention Morocco as a place uh, that's very affordable and um, has pretty good cuisine, has some amazing sites. I always felt a little hunted in the streets of Marrakesh, let's put it this way. Yeah. Um, it is a little rougher. You need to be ready to for some rougher interactions. Um, <laughs> but if you are, um, and that also goes for other countries like Egypt or Turkey, if you are, these countries are extremely beautiful, very affordable. And if, if you can kind of make your peace with that part um, of, of your daily experience, um, Morocco is, is often a place that people recommend. Yeah, I, I mean, 100%. Morocco, I mean, offers so much. I mean, it's not like there's just one place to visit. It's the entire country you could road trip for weeks or months on end. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I had maybe a couple of irritating guys in Marrakesh in the the square. I mean, that's almost part of the visit. And then I had one other scamster on my way to Fez. Um, But yeah, I think you have to be a little bit prepared if you're not used to those type of interactions. Um, that that could and most likely will happen to be uh, take place in Morocco, but that should not preclude you from visiting because it's a fantastic country. Like you said, one can be visited 100% independently, great cross structure, great infrastructure, very good food, and so many amazing things to see and do. So 100% would back you up on your recommendation. When you think of the places that you still haven't visited yet what seems to be the biggest challenge out of those countries where you feel like well they they are kind of the opposite end of this decision matrix they're hard to get to the food is terrible and is extremely expensive um well i mean one country i'm very excited to visit uh well two of them the first one will be libya uh which i am so excited and ecstatic to visit hopefully sooner than later um and it's not, it's, it's one of the least straightforward places to visit, meaning for all intents and purposes, they don't issue tourist visas. So the travel hack is there's one or two companies that basically all the extreme travelers know about and are aware of that you contact and they got to make a business visa for you. I think it costs like $500 or so. So yeah. expensive. You got to jump through some hoops Um, and then once you get there, there's a security issue and only very limited parts of the country you can visit. But again, this is untouched territory, meaning you're not going to be running into over tourism and it's this, you know, old culture, old country, um, where you're going to be able to do some amazing things when you're in Libya. When you, when you look at countries, what is your, 
say your your MO when you get there? What what were the things that you check? I traveled with other um, travelers, and they, for instance, find um, all the uh, all the religious institutions in that country. So they really are interested in churches. They go there because, say, they're really interested in the beginnings of uh, early Christianity. So they try to find those, or um, they try to find a mosque. Um, what is kind of your MO if you get to a country? What What are the things you really want to see and check out once you're in a new place? Yeah, so my MO, I mean, I don't know if this makes me a generalist, but in general, I am excited and motivated to see the thing that the country is known for. So in other words, if you're in Palau, I'm not, my, my motivation is not to hunt out the churches. My motivation is to get out into nature, to start snorkeling, to start kayaking and see these, you know, amazing, awesome things in the ocean. Um, if I'm in Lalabella, Ethiopia, it's famous for its rock carved churches. So there I want to see these, you know, ancient churches. I want to see all the Orthodox priests doing a service. I want to take in all the people who are there on the pilgrimage. Um, so yeah, I'm, and if I'm in Tanzania, I want to go see safari. So if I'm in Namibia, I want to go see the world famous desert. So I definitely want to see the highlights of each country for what they're known for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when, when I started traveling, I didn't really know what to expect, to be honest. And I didn't know what is just a tale, what is kind of marketing, right? And what is real. And one thing that I noticed is that every country has something that they're very competitive at. <laughs> and that might be a cultural behavior, that might be something they produce, that might be something... Um, you can actually ship, uh, say in Germany, it's usually high quality products. So you can discover something where, where A, um, you can enjoy something that is world class at usually very affordable rates. And B, you can see there seems to be similar ways of dedication that the locals have, or the local culture has to a certain thing. But then there's also a pastime. There's something, it might be surfing, it might be... Um, hiking, it might be uh, running, what, whatever it is. I, I felt wherever, and irrespective of the expectations I had and, and the knowledge I had about this country, it became relatively soon apparent that there's a few things in that country that I often didn't expect that are fantastic to enjoy and see what what, what people made out of, out of their circumstances and created something that is highly valuable. Um, I was really surprised by this. Like I, I felt, and maybe that was just my, my idea of perception, wherever you go, there is something that is world-class. And it's sometimes hard to predict what it is. Sometimes you know enough about a country and there's enough literature about it and you kind of easily figure this out. But to your point, I feel like it's, it's not necessarily a tourist experience, right? I mean, the Serengeti maybe is, so to speak, right? It is something very touristy. But there is things in Tanzania, the way people go about their life, and you go through Stone Town, for instance, this is just amazing. And I, sometimes you see it coming, and sometimes you don't see it coming, and it really um, gives you this, at least when I, when I count myself, it gives me this euphoric travel experience. I discovered something I can always go back to. And irrespective of what happens to me, there's always this place of perfection I can go back to. 
and now I need an example. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be, here's a good example. And I think yeah. this, is, this is the, 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 the problem. We, we, I don't know if you, if you have a good idea how to solve it. It's the, the islands in, in Thailand, right? So they were perfect for the longest time, and then they just got ruined by over tourism. And it seems that was easy to predict, but it was also very sad to see. Okay, but give me give me one of the so the example that you're utilizing is the Thai islands being perfection. Yeah, I went to Koh Phi Phi in um, the mid '90s, and it was just beautiful. It was it was perfectly clear water. It was it was a great infrastructure. There were guest houses. There were bounty um, bountiful restaurants. There was a small community of travelers that seemed to be really in the know and was really really cognizant of the environment, tried to protect it. And then it just fell apart. And I went back in like 10, 15 years later, and that was not even recognizable the place yeah. anymore. It's ruined. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, speaking very specifically to that, um, you know, I don't know the exact number of islands in Thailand. It's, you know, thousands. There's always a new and un upcoming island. So, for instance, one of my great finds uh, the last 12 months in Thailand is an island called Komak. Komak is next to Koh Chang. Koh Chang is either the second or third biggest island in Thailand. It's near the border of Cambodia. Komak is, is tiny that there's about 400 permanent residents. And the benchmark I utilize of whether something is developed is if there's a 7-Eleven. So for those who've been to Thailand, you know 7-Elevens are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're both good and bad. Uh, but for instance, Komak doesn't have a 7-Eleven. There's only one ATM. There's no bars. There's no clubs. The beaches are unspoilt and untouched, and it's not over-touristed. So uh, that would just show you. you it's, a, it's a game of inchworm, meaning one island in Thailand gets ruined, and then you have to move to the next one that's in the process of development and discover that one and enjoy that island until it's ruined. Yeah, we, 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 we all know the story from the beach, right? From the movie and the novel. Yeah. And it seems there is this motivation to keep these places kind of to yourself, to not talk about <laughs> it. That was the story of the movie. And once you start talking about the secret beach, right? Then it, it, it will always end in the same scenario and then the crowd moves on and there's tons of places left in the world so it's it's not a real running out of places like that right but there seems to be an, an insider advantage that's built into this it's kind of like a, like uh, a hedge fund right so you don't want to give away your secrets because if you do then you can't make money anymore mm -hmm. and the same seems true with this kind of travel which is again a subsector of travel but it seems everyone tries to maintain that secret and when the secret is out then the place is gone yeah, so I mean, I think two comments on that. And I mean, Komak isn't a secret. I mean, people know about it per se. But I was tweeting about it and some, you know, long-term expats in Thailand jokingly harangued me saying, hey, don't let this secret out. We want to keep it undeveloped. Um, and then the second comment I'm going to make, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Joe Cummings. Joe is in the... Joe is an American who moved to Thailand, let's say, in the early 80s. And he's the individual that wrote, wrote the first book 
for Lonely Planet on Thailand. So the guy's uh, completely fluent in Thai and some of the local dialects. And a comment that he made that I found so interesting and kind of explanatory is you have this argument of Instagrammers ruining a landmark in a certain country. Um, And that can be true. But what Joe said is, Joe says, I have been promoting Isan for 30 years. Isan is the Northeast region of Thailand. It's the Alabama of Thailand. It's the farm country. It's very poor. And what he said is, I've been promoting Isan for 30 plus years. And he has a pretty big megaphone when it comes to Thailand. Only 2% of tourists after 30 years go to Isan. So, I mean, there's so many different mechanisms that goes into the buying decision of where a tourist will end up. But, you know, you're always going to have the Comox of the world and you're always going to have the Isans of the world, um, I think, for, you know, hopefully generations to come. Yeah. This, those are very wise words. It seems to be somewhat unpredictable where where this journey goes and what takes off. Um, I've, we, I was talking about that in another episode. There seems to be some kind of viral movement that's unpredictable, um, which place as a destination takes off. And I made this example um, because I know that from, from Germany, my German relatives, they're all very well experienced in going to Dubai. And you would think, oh, they go there for certain business transactions. They go there for, for shopping. But what it's really known for is as a, as a beach destination, which seems really odd because it's either too hot for the beach or it's relatively cold in December, January. And the beaches aren't that great in the first place. And it's not that cheap. And there isn't a really beach vibe about this place. It's just not that kind of place. There's lots of other good things about Dubai, but certainly not a great beach destination, but uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi are widely recognized all over Germany as one of the best places to go in winter, in Northern Hemisphere winter, to have a beach vacation, mm. which it doesn't seem to wipe with, with anyone else in the world, but it's, it's, it's known as a fact. And uh, it's the country to look at when, you, when you're looking at beach vacations, which is silly when you think of it. But it's, it's been like this for 20 years. Mm. And I find this fascinating how how these themes of travel take off that often don't have to do much with reality. Mm. And even if people go there and they come back slightly disappointed because it doesn't fit what they have in their mind, they would still recommend it. And it keeps strengthening um, this myth. Mm. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, I mean, there's probably hundreds of different factors that go into that, you know, whether, you know, what the Dubai tourism board is doing, what, you know, what partnerships Emirates is making with, uh, you know, people in Germany with what tour providers in Germany are doing to promote Dubai and what the media is doing, what the influencers are doing. Yeah. So I, I don't ever view Dubai as a beach destination for myself. I've been there several times. I've never been to the beach, but yeah. What, I think nobody outside of Germany does. So I find it, Really fascinating how it takes how it took off that way. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is there is for a lot of people a lot of anxiety to go to a new place in the first place, and there is 
always is worried that you're being exposed because you don't have insider knowledge, because you don't know the place and you don't know which neighborhood to go to. You don't know what's safe, what's not safe, what might really um, create issues with, with the locals. How do you deal with this? How do you prepare yourself to go to a new country that you consider dangerous? Yeah. Um, so let's pretend I am going to Mali. So this was kind of a case study for me last year. I was in, um, what's it called? I was in Burkina Faso in the, I can't remember the name of the city, Bobo. Yeah, yeah, Bobo. I was in Bobo on the west, uh, Burkina Faso's uh, second biggest city. And I was with my friend slash guide who has a car. And we'd been driving all around West Africa. The plan was to go from Bobo to Bamako. And I was sort of going to do a check the box visit from Mali, spend a couple of days Bamako, the capital, and walk around. And at the last minute, he said, we should go to Jenne. Jenne's in the middle part of the country. And it is famous for the largest mud structure in the world. It's an incredible mud moss, the, the grand moss that was built in Jenne. So it's one of those things a traveler has to see. Um, so now we start doing research because Mali in general is not the safest country. And, you know, I, I would say it's sort of like a funnel. So very quickly you go on the U.S. State Department and you see what the threat assessment there is. And, you know, it says do not travel it's uh, the highest. It always level. says that. Yeah, yeah. You're right. So, yeah. So the highest level do not travel, um, you know, and that gets you, that gets you a tiny pit in your stomach, um, you know, because it's, it's obviously not a hundred percent accurate based upon what's happening, but it gives you a guideline that this is, you know, not one of the safer countries. So now you need more information on the ground. And it's almost like being like a detective or a journalist. You start calling your sources. So there's a famous um, hostel in Bamako that I was staying at. It's owned by an expat. I reach out to email. I'm like, should I go to Jenne? You know, because this guy's been living there 10 years. He goes, uh, to be honest, we do not recommend that you go there. We don't recommend any of our guests go there. We had an incident five years ago. Someone got kidnapped. Okay. So that's, you know, that's a vote for no. Then I reach out to this local provider um, near Jenna, a Dutch woman. Uh, her company's called Papillon and she's been guiding foreigners there for, you know, for years. She goes, you know, I think you're okay in Jenna, but don't go any further East than that. Then I go to Instagram and I find a couple people that had been there within the last couple months. And I send them a quick message. Then I go to my travel community um, and reach out to other friends of friends in my travel community who've been there. So then you, you create this mosaic, you create this picture of how safe it is. Um, and there were enough votes saying, yes, go for it, that my guide and I drove off to Jenne um, there was one final intersection and our goal was to get there before sunset. And this was like a nine hour drive to get there from Boba, Boba to Jenny. So it was a long drive. So we had like, we had like a good 60, 90 minutes left before sunset. 
and there's one final intersection. So to the right, you were going to Jenne, and then to the left, I think, San. And there was a police checkpoint there. So we get out, and we go to the policeman. He's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, oh, we're going to Jenne. And he says something like in French, I don't speak French. He's like, oh, sector rouge, sector rouge. So, you know, red sector, don't go there. He says, don't go there, sector rouge. And then I had, a, I had a legitimate pit in my stomach, but we had come so far. I said, let's go. Went to Jenne, uh, only spent one night there. It's amazing. And one of my highlights of Africa. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people say that when they really prepare for danger, it doesn't really happen to them. But if they are relaxed, if they are in their comfortable <laughs> environment, they often get hit by dangerous situations more often, even if it's still relatively rare. And I'm kind of curious, you strike me as very methodical. It's extremely planned out. You know what you're doing. You don't get into a lot of chaos. How much of, of randomness and serendipity do you think is in your travels and how much is actually pre-planned and you, you saw that coming? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, you brought up a great point of, you know, the safety versus security. And I think one of the biggest challenges in the travel community is, oh, I just went to, you know, Burkina Faso is another country that's rated as uh, like, do not travel by the State Department. And there are you know, a regular fair amount of violence and terrorist incidences in that countries, and some of them directed at Westerners. So I think the, the biggest, one of the dangerous pitfalls the extreme traveler community falls into is, oh, I just went to Burkina Faso. It's extremely safe. Nothing happened to me. And of course, that, that can happen. And you did have a completely safe uh, trip to Burkina Faso. But that doesn't negate the dangers and threats that are found in that country. And I, I think that's a slippery slope that you look at that one data point of that one person who didn't have a negative, you know, violent interaction in that country. So I think that's something everybody has to be aware of that one or two or three people going to that country doesn't negate the threat or danger of that country. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it seems like this is more like a like what children do, right? So they have very little data points. Um, say my children, they, they, they run with their bikes over a really crazy intersection. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they tell me later on, well, nothing happened, right? I didn't get hit. I'm like, yeah, you got really lucky. But they don't understand these two... And I think this mental model is still something that's 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 growing in children is they have this one mental model that I think is a bit like AI, where we feel like we, we learn from a large set of data set of data points, um, a huge data set, and then it's a purely statistical analysis. And we have this in our minds. And I think this is this is called well, I don't know what it's called, but it's part of our brains. And then we have the other end where indeed the best example is when we get into an accident, we suddenly realize it's dangerous. And that's only one data point. We might have crossed the same intersection a thousand times, but if you have one accident, we will always think of it yeah, as dangerous. Yeah. It completely exactly. changes our model. And I think what you're describing is the opposite, right? So we have this, we expect this enormous amount of danger, then nothing happens and we think it's safe, but it's silly, right? It's the same with what a child would do. If, if you tell them it's dangerous, they cross the street anyways, if they are fine, that doesn't make it any more 
safe. It's just they got lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel this very hard to evaluate what my personal safety or security will be once on the ground. And my, my tale is from, from Lagos, where I felt arriving at the airport, uh, people were extracting bribes just to get out of the airport. Mm. Um, I immediately had to get a police escort to just get mm. off to hit the mainland. But then I was on Victoria Island, and most of the time, even during the day, I was able to walk around. I felt no security threats. Um, I felt there is, it is nothing that, that um, really prohibits me with a little bit of disguise, with a little bit of making myself less visible, not having my camera hang out and stuff. Mm. But I could walk around uninhabited. And this continued, at least during the daytime, as long as I was there. Um, during the night, it was a little more shaky, but it could have still maybe would have been fine. So even the locals seemed to be very worried about crime, violent crime directed against them, especially on freeways and carjacking is very frequent. Yeah. But I didn't see it. So I would come back and say, oh, it's completely safe. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it, which probably wouldn't be correct. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, it's all based upon so often your personal experiences, your personal perspectives. And then it could be as something as simple as the neighborhood that you walked around is statistically safer, but one neighborhood to the east or one neighborhood to the west is not safe. So, you know, um, you just interviewed James from Untamed Borders recently. And I went yeah. to Afghanistan with James's company. And I went with them because that's, in my opinion, one of the most challenging countries to visit from a security standpoint. And I wasn't going to do that independently. I know people who've done it independently. And that's, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. And we're up in the north, for example, in Marzi Sharif. And we do a day trip to Balkh, which is relatively nearby. And our guide that day was a little, you know, tiny, tiny bit edgier. And he was going, okay, guys, let's move it. Come on, next place, next place. And then as we're, you know, as we're leaving Balkh, he says, oh, 30 minutes to the east is ISIS. And 30 minutes to the south is Taliban. And obviously these borders are not, you know, thousand foot walls. Any guy from the Taliban can drive 30 minutes into Balkh um, with poor or bad intention. So again, you know, if you're not a local and you don't know the deal, you could by luck be on the safe street or by luck be in the street one over that is, you know, not as safe. Yeah, I think this is, the anxiety that people feel, I think, is not always justified, but sometimes it is. And mm. it was in the 90s, I think, when Miami got a really bad rap for um, <laughs> and some neighborhoods in Miami, when people picked up their cars at the airport. And there's some bad neighborhoods that you have to drive through. And they could spot them as rental cars with the big stickers. And yeah, they would I just remember. relieve the tours of their, their luggage and of their car if, if there was no tracking at the time. And for a lot of Europeans, that was something they couldn't wrap their mind around because the U.S. was known, at least until that point, as you know, a safe place. Europe is very safe. There isn't a lot of shaky neighborhoods in Europe, so to speak. This doesn't mean crime doesn't exist, but it doesn't have this neighborhood divide. 
And in the US, it's enormous. And people didn't even think about that. Like they didn't, they just didn't know what to expect. And then they, they hear some of those tales probably wasn't like hundreds, it was a few dozen. And they couldn't really wrap their mind around it. Their mental model was just not explaining it. And I think this is the problem for, for the un, relatively unexperienced travelers that there is no mental model. But once you hear about it, once you, once you learn more about it, you can, you can master these situations, almost all instances, I feel, if you just put enough thinking into it, you can still get unlucky, right? So there is an attack on the hotel you're staying in. That's it. That's the end of your life. Which would not be good. It wouldn't be good. Well, we all have to die one day. Mm. But hopefully not in a hotel attack. That would be pretty pretty sad. But I feel, I don't know what your, your impression is. When I, when I look in the eyes of some of these extreme travelers, you might not be one of them. But I feel like it is something they, it, it's, it has appeared to them and they're willing to still take that risk. So it doesn't discourage them. And they're kind of, they feel like the risk that they are taking is worth it. And I, I, I see this also with extreme athletes who take enormous amount of risks. For them, it becomes more manageable because they have a lot of training, because they have a lot of skills. But it's still, they put their life at risk in pretty much every day they go out there. Something can go wrong. And in a matter of a couple of seconds, I had Xavier de la Rue on, if, if something changes, if the snow, there's more ice under the snow, which you can't 100% predict until you're there, that's, that's it. Like, there's no second chance. You only have two seconds to, to control this. And if you don't react immediately, and, you know, that's someone's perception, obviously, is higher if you're an extreme athlete, but you still need time to actually evaluate that. They, they know there is a high price of potentially what they do, but they're still going for it. And I'm curious why that is, right? But why are they so different than most people would say, well, this is too close, too close a call. I'm not doing it. Well, I, I think one is this idea of challenging yourself or, you know, what, when, you know, for most people, your first trip overseas is not Afghanistan. Most people, I think, start off, you know, let's pretend you're U.S.-based. So your first trip is to the Caribbean or Cancun or London, and then you start expanding your horizons, right? So, okay, you know what? London was pretty good. What about this place, Budapest? It used to be behind the Iron Curtain, but maybe I can do that. You build up your experience, you build up your comfort zone. And then I think for some people, you know, everybody has a finite point. So maybe your finite point ends in Europe, but then it might be, okay, Europe was amazing, but what about this place, Morocco, which is just right over the border? So I think for the vast majority of people, it's building up experience and also expanding your horizons in terms of the concept of what you find compelling, what you find interesting, and this desire at some point to learn and explore more. So again, even when I did, you know, even though I was doing a lot of travel, let's say in the early 2000s, you know, I didn't, Afghanistan never crossed my mind. So it was this game of learning, gaining more experience, feeling more confident, and also learning 
I, I think another major part of it is the internet, social media has given us these communities. So if your community is lunchboxes from the 1970s, it's Pokemon cards, it's baseball, it's extreme travel, you're, everybody's easily and readily able to find their community of like-minded souls. And this group community provides you with the basis of confidence, experience, and network, which allows you to expand out and do and see more. Yeah, absolutely. I feel it is something that has gotten easier also. Obviously, it's gotten cheaper, um, but there's also more countries to visit um, than there was like 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, one of these examples, and I'm still wrapping my mind around it, but like when I hear these stories, I'm immediately curious and I want to do it, is this, this road from Yakuts to Magadan. And I went mm -hmm. to Yakutsk in winter and I thought it was was fantastic. Um, it was cold and you have to be careful literally <laughs> to not get hypothermia, but it is a different, very dry cold. So it's, it's, it doesn't feel as bad as it sounds. And it's mm. very sunny there, even if the sun only comes up for a few hours. And uh, the first thing I wanted to do is, is drive to Magadan. Now I have no idea why, right? So it's, it's extremely dangerous if, you, if your car stops, if you're, for whatever reason, um, can't restart your car, which in that cold is very likely. Um, everyone has to have their car in garages overnight, for instance, if you live in Yakutsk. It, it seems to be really silly. But when I got to Yakutsk, all I could think about was, was driving to Magadan. And I can't, couldn't really identify why, right? It, obviously, it was something people tell me about. It's this tale, it's a tale of adventure, it's a tale of the ultimate challenge. But also, it's extremely dangerous. A lot of people die on this. There isn't a lot of backups. There is a bunch of locals who, who have to do it. But they're like, there's no, they hate doing this because it is dangerous, it's cold, and it's boring. Why would anyone do this? But you get to Yakutsk and all, that's all I could think about. Mm. I couldn't really trace my... F for me, it would be something where, I, where I'm really unconsciously drawn to, but I can't really explain it to myself. So if I left Yakutsk, it was kind of over. I was like, mm. okay, well, let's do this in another decade. So did you end up going to Mag Magadan or not? No, no, no. I flew back. Next trip. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, again, I, I think it's is, you know, and I haven't been there, but it is 100% on my list. And it's on my list because I've gone to some website and read about a tour to Magadan. I've spoken to one of my friends who's been there. And if you love learning, you love exploring, you're going to see something different and unique when you go to this slice of Siberia. And also, I think there's, I think it's also compelling for so many of us because so few people from a tourist perspective have these experiences. So we go back to Maya Beach or Maya Bay and Co-PP. Yeah. And you go there, there's 80 speedboats that hold 40 people each all on the beach at the same time. And again, this is one of these pristine slices of Thai beaches that's spectacular to see, but not with 3,200 people on the beach. There's the specialness evaporates, it disappears. But when you go up to, you know, Spitsbergen or the far eastern Russia, or you go to Jenne and see the Grand Mosque at sunrise, 
and there's no other Westerner there. That makes that experience more special, more unique, more personalized, I believe. And I think that can be another main driver, um, both from an experiential level, but also for those who want to check the box level as well. So again, it could be singular for either one of those or twofold combining them together. Yeah. I, what I'm trying to get at, there seems to be something subconscious that drives us there and we then we come back and say, oh, it was all worth it, right? Oh, that's, that's what people who go on these highest mountains have, the, the mountaineers. They go up there and they, they get this rush and it's all worth it. And from a, from a rational perspective, it seems silly and mm. it is silly, but it's something baked into our genes that we're, I think we're not, a, we know it exists, but we don't really have a good model to describe it, to see when it arises. Um, we do have certain categories. We know that it happens and I think it's, it's been very well known uh, throughout um, ancient history. But I think it's not really well explored from a psychological mm. perspective. There isn't a lot of forecasts you can do. Okay, this person will be will be really enjoying this. This mm. person will go to the extremes. When someone is 20 years old, you can't make these predictions. I mean, looking back, we know, right? So you go to, do you have this amazing experience in Burkina Faso? And you know it was all worth it. And you would do it again. And you would take the risk. But you didn't necessarily know that before you went. No, no 100%. Yeah, I mean... Who, who, yeah, from a psychological perspective, I have no idea what the actual driver is for this. I mean, I guess the general thing is man has been exploring this world and beyond ever since man came into creation. So at some level, at least for a subset of the population, it has to be hardwired for part of the population to want to push the boundaries and to explore. Yeah, I feel it's, it's amazing that we are, for a lot of these ultimate drivers of ourselves, we're just in for the right. We're just a passenger in our mm. body or in our mind. We don't really steer it, which is, when you think about it, a big debate about free will. Um, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> Where I want to go is you made a couple of movies um, and documentaries. How did that happen and what do they illuminate? Your personal travels or a specific country? Yeah, so th this was really like lightning striking, serendipity. Uh, to go back in time, in 2004, I was living in Armenia for several months and I was volunteering at an after-school group. I kept in touch with the owner of the school over the years and I would go back to Armenia every year to visit. So I, I developed you know, a nice relationship with these people. One of the times I was visiting was in 2010. And I mentioned to you, I drove from Budapest to Yerevan, 17 days, 7,000 kilometers. The race ended in Yerevan. And I spent some time in the, the city and I went to visit my friends from the after-school group. The owner of the after-school group had three sons who I taught briefly at that school in 04. And back in 2010, they were now like in their early 20s and they were professional filmmakers. So I sat down with these guys, these young guys, and I'm like, oh, I just went on this amazing adventure. I drove from here to here. The car broke down. We met this guy and I was regaling them with my adventure. One thing led to another and the son said, 
that would make an amazing documentary. So two years later, I was in India with my friend Keith. We drove a Indian rickshaw for 2,000 kilometers from Mumbai to Chennai. And I brought along two of these brothers that I had met uh, eight years previously. So uh, we created a full-length documentary, 80 minutes, called Hit the Road India. And it was all by serendipity because it's like, you know, you're talking about, you know, are you going to be this explorer when you get older or are you going to be couch potato? Like looking back, I would never imagine I would be in a film or producing a film, but due to these unlikely events all cascading together, that's where I found myself uh, in 2012 filming this documentary. Is it available on YouTube or Netflix? Um, it's on neither of those. It's, it's almost old school media, meaning it's available on iTunes and Amazon for a purchase, uh, but not streaming for free anywhere at this time. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get it on Netflix or Amazon to stream, but haven't had any success yet. I heard Jeremy Clarkson from Top Gear and the Grand Tour um, Jokingly saying, you know, he was asked about his, his future plans, maybe outside of the Grand Tour. And he said, you know, what else is there? What is better in the world than traveling the world with a couple of mates, a couple of friends? Mm. And in old cars, new cars, whatever it mm. is, and seeing the world kind of from a, you know, bantering about what's going on in that moment. And I think he's he's right. Obviously, we, we would agree with them because we love travel anyways. But there is something really special about a bunch of people. And this draws me back to maybe the, the, the explorers, Vasco da Gama and, and, and Columbus. What else is better than to take this journey? And again, maybe not as much risk that you might kill yourself or go to something that's relatively safe. And maybe he's not just joking. Maybe he's actually right. And I was thinking of that when I saw your movies. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, how, what is more awesome than the road trip? So yeah. get together with your friend or friends uh, and then drive around, explore, meet the locals, eat good food, have a good drink. And again, go to these places that you would never in a million years thought you would have been visiting. So the great thing about the rickshaws, you know, or the tuk-tuk is they're very accessible, meaning they're open on the sides. So, you yeah. know, you could have been doing this drive in a $100,000 Range Rover with the AC on and your surround sound listening to great music, or you can be in the rickshaw where you can just start talking virtually at any moment with the guy driving next to you on a bike or another tuk-tuk or someone at an intersection. So it's a great catalyst or mechanism to make your experience even more genuine or more local. So this was a great way to, to see India and do this adventure. How much of it was scripted? So how, how many of their conversations were freely going or you had a certain script or things that you wanted to talk about and how much of the, the, 
the footage was done in a way that you knew you would be there. So you knew you did certain things, um, made it look like you were doing mm. this the first time, but you actually had to repeat it maybe because of, of camera issues or how much of that was, was really spontaneous. Very little. I mean, there's probably only one or 2% of that film was scripted. Um, so they were just trying to capture everything in real time and unscripted. And uh, again, uh, reshot or redone again, probably only one or 2%, you know, there'd be a point like we're driving down a Valley and they'd be like, okay, let's, you know, let's do this three different times. But most of it was completely spontaneous or we'll call it real and unscripted. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I feel like we've seen very few of those, or maybe it's just, I'm not looking in the right places. We've seen very few of those spontaneous, but worthwhile documentaries mm -hmm. from other travelers, right? We've seen their travel videos. We've seen their travel pictures on Instagram for sure but say a 60 minute, 90 minute, whatever format it is, three hour format. Um, this is my really entertaining 90 minute um, cut down version of my two year trip to mm. India or six month trip, whatever mm -hmm. the length is. It seems to be there is one skill as a traveler and to, to take it all in and maybe even document it. But then there's a whole other skill and then maybe they don't combine as often um, in one person or in a team than to make it entertaining and make it a um, 90 minute format that people actually want to watch and find engaging. Hmm. It seems yeah. to be relatively rare, right? It's not something that you can see all the time on YouTube. Yeah. I mean, I think the vast majority of travel videos, well, I mean, the ones we're watching, I would say are scripted, meaning, yeah. you know, the real successful travel makers like a Drew Binsky, um, he has professionalized his videos over the last several years. And these videos are tight and short and scripted. And that's successful. I mean, I'm sure there's some video on YouTube that's 60 minutes of just some guy, you know, walking and talking in some monastery or mosque, but you're not watching it because it's, it's probably boring. So yeah, I mean, a 60-minute video that you want to watch that's professionalized, that's completely free-flow and spontaneous. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not watching those, I guess, too often or seeing those. Yeah, maybe they're probably out there. I just haven't found them yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, I think this is kind of a, a holy grail. And uh, I was talking to, to Boris Kester about that. He was saying, you know, there is a good chance that a good part of travel goes virtual. And I think this would be one core experience, right? So maybe you, you record it in 360 or 3D. Um, that's relatively easy and cheap equipment now. But you immediately, you relive this experience of the traveler, the explorer, so to speak. You relive it. It doesn't have to be a live stream, but you relive it in, in, in real time later on. And this is the question, what would it lead to? Would it lead to people travel less because the virtual trip might be better and safer and more comfortable and they can stay home, don't have to worry about any viruses? Or, or they get so interested in it that this extreme traveling becomes the norm, right, de facto. So what, what I'm trying to say is we have this 
this change of travel patterns when you think about the 1920s, finding someone who had the ability, the time, and the resources to go to every country in the world was, was basically unheard of. <laughs> it didn't happen. But now there's thousands, maybe 10,000 people who've done this, or maybe 5,000, whatever the number is. Um, it seems to have gone mainstream. And maybe extreme traveling is the next thing that goes really mainstream. Not mainstream, mainstream, but it has taken off in a wider, wider group. Maybe this is what everyone is going to do. Everyone's going to go to 193 countries using VR as a preparation tool. Do you think it's going to happen? Uh, are you saying, do I think chasing 193 will become mainstream in real yes. life or mainstream mm -hmm. in, in VR? Both, maybe. Um, I would be of the camp that chasing 193 would never be mainstream. Um, it is without a doubt vastly expanded from just 20 years ago. Um, but I mean, tourism at some level is not mainstream. I mean, I don't have the statistics, but, you know, what percentage of people have passports in each one of these countries? And so, yeah, I, I would disagree that chasing 193 will become mainstream in real life. Um, I think if we're looking at YouTube travel, YouTube travel videos are incredibly successful and widely, widely viewed. So at some level, I would just imagine VR supplanting, you know, the 4K or the 8K technology. And at some point, the platforms and the technology will simply transition from uh, 2D video into virtual reality video. And this, um, and obviously I'm making all this up, Torsten, but I imagine all the people who love watching Drew Binsky in Kurdistan will love Drew Binsky VR in Kurdistan. And the same people who love Drew Binsky in Kurdistan on YouTube and follow in his footsteps and go to Kurdistan will be the same group that will follow in his footsteps after watching VR. So uh, I, I would say from the Chasing 193 perspective, I don't think VR will move the needle to get people to go to Afghanistan unless they are, they are the type of people who would want to go to Afghanistan to begin with. Yeah. A lot of travel is said to be we, we travel through that person. So for the majority of the population, it's more interesting to have them experience it firsthand, but then use the secondhand experience, which seems to be working very well with travel. It doesn't work so well with like food, for instance, but we even have a lot of food shows, right? And we don't, we still enjoy them, even if they just make us hungry, even if you don't eat afterwards. So this traveling through someone, travel is a great experience you can experience through someone else. And I feel like we are, is is or any kind of better technology that makes it more real, if it's VR, whatever the technology will be, um, has a great future for, for that niche of traveling. And I don't know what that means, and that's what I'm so curious about. Will that mean we just stop traveling in these crazy amounts that we seemingly have just before 2019? Or will it lead to even more travel and we basically become, all become these global nomads, these digital nomads out there? Yeah, um, uh, I mean, this isn't something I've analyzed at great length, great length, but 
but I'm going to stick with my theory that VR doesn't move the needle. Meaning if you were, you had a proclivity of traveling to Syria before on your own, I don't think VR or a video will be, I don't think VR will, will move the dial in terms of saying 0.001% of Americans want to travel to Syria today. And then great VR technology comes out with a great narrator. I don't think that 0.0001 changes to 10%. I think it's, it'll remain constant because at some level, the people who have this impetus to visit, quote unquote, challenging or dangerous places are not going to be swayed by the VR. And the percentage who are the armchair travelers, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's on VR, the technology of the future will remain constant and consistent. Talking about predictions, where do you feel we'll see major changes in the travel landscape? And that's a pretty broad question, I understand. But where do you see the biggest changes going to happen in the next 20 years when we look at the, the travel industry as a whole, but also into the more extreme travelers on the other side? Okay, so uh, um, a lot to unpack there. I'll, I'll comment on extreme travelers in 20 years, and we just touched on this a moment ago, meaning 20 years ago, traveling to every country in the world was basically not a thing. And I, I don't know the exact numbers. 20 years ago, it might have been 20 people had traveled to every country in the world, something like that. In 2019, approximately 40 people traveled, had finished the goal of traveling to every country in the world. So, I, I mean, that's a magnitude of difference. So, as I said, in the age of internet, in the age of social media, um, you can find your tribe very quickly. Then couple that with the, you know, getting the Instagram, getting the gram, so th there's one school of people who are doing it for this incredible experience and richness of exploration. Then there's another subset of the Chasing 193 community who is doing it for the gram, so to speak, because it's the in thing to do. I'll get a record, blah, blah, blah. So 20 years ago, there are 20 people who had done it. Now there's about 250 people who have accomplished that goal. So looking 20 years out, I mean, I'm expecting that number to expand both, you know, the people who have accomplished the goal, but also the increase of the people from a quest or hobby want to partake in this adventure. But I don't think it ever would go to being mainstream, but the subset of people who are traveling, that subset, I think, you know, might grow by factor of five or 10 or 20 over the next 20 years as, you know, the internet flattens everything out and the airline industry flattens everything out. So that's my thoughts on extreme travel 20 years going out. Well, I'm definitely excited. That sounds really positive. Um, and I hope maybe we inspired some people today with the podcast. Thanks for doing this, Rick. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Thorsten, thank you. Appreciate it.